invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Uh, Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, from God's Word now, uh, verses 1 through 28 of Exodus 12. Admittedly, we will only be able to scratch the surface uh, with a few thoughts this morning from this uh, amazing, truly remarkable chapter of Holy Scripture. But let us rise now uh, to hear uh, the reading of God's holy and errant word. Uh, this is uh, Exodus 12, uh, verse 1 and following. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening." For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, in all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had, had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. You may be seated. Little ones at this time are dismissed to the nursery. Uh, let us pray and ask God's blessing, shall we, on his word. We thank you, Father, uh, for your holy word. Uh, we would pray uh, with all of our hearts now that you would speak to all of us and reveal your truth and instruct and guide our hearts. Save us, O Lord the life and death of Jesus and feed us now that manna from heaven and break open the bread of life to us even Jesus Christ for the life of our souls in his name we pray amen compare with me the biblical Passover with our modern Thanksgiving these two feasts express the radical contrast between the identity of the people of God and our identity as Americans. One, the Passover, is a bitter feast of sacrifice and haste, preparing us for an exodus arrayed as military hosts, celebrating a feast that is identified with the Lord's own covering and his sheltering love. The other is a feast of abundance that in its most godless form tends towards gluttony and prepares us for a long afternoon of slumber and napping. Now meals in the Bible, you know, are pregnant with meaning, sitting at a table with others, sharing a meal was a profound expression of fellowship in the ancient world. At meals, we share stories of the past. We celebrate God's faithfulness. We anticipate future blessing. And in the case of the Passover, the sharing of a meal became an act of worship. Before us this morning is one of the pivotal texts in all of Holy Scripture. And for at least two reasons, that is so. First, the Passover, the historical event of the deliverance of Israel 
from the divine wrath that was being visited upon Egypt, and this as a means of her deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt to new life in the promised land. This is the defining redemptive event of the Old Testament. And to this event, to the Passover, to the Exodus, the biblical writers continually drew the attention of the ancient people of God to remind them that God was their Redeemer and to impress upon their hearts his almighty power to save. And for this reason, the Passover served as the great type and anticipation of the eternal redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul will indeed say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And second, the Passover as a feast, as an annual commemorative celebration of the Exodus redemption, became the high point of Israel's worship. And it formed the structure and the paradigm of her worship. As we all know, it was the Passover meal that the Lord Jesus, the night of his betrayal, turned into the Lord's Supper. And it is a fascinating and important fact. These two emphases, the historical event itself, and then the commemorative celebration of that event as an annual feast, are woven together seamlessly throughout these portions of Exodus. There is an event, and there is the Lord's commandment to commemorate that event with a feast. And thus, the annual commemorative act of worship is tied inextricably to the real historical event that took place in time and in space. And this is always the nature of the biblical gospel. It is bound up in history, in God's mighty acts that really took place at a certain time, at a certain place, with a particular people. It is why, for example, when the little children ask their parents, Mommy and Daddy, what is the meaning of this meal? The parents can say to them, let me tell you what happened, what the Lord did in history, and therefore why we celebrate this meal, why we worship. You can see that so clearly in verse 27, when the people are told what to say to their children, that this was the Lord's Passover who struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. It was then that they bowed their heads and worshiped. But let me focus with you this morning on just a couple of characteristic elements of this meal. First thing we are told is that it is going to be an annual feast, an annual celebration, an annual time of worship to take place on the same day in the same month each year. As a beginning of months, we read, as a commencement of the Israelite year. Secondly, verse 3, every man, if he was able, was to take a lamb or a kid. Could have been a goat as well. A male of the first year, without blemish, 
for the Passover meal. And they were to wait until the 14th day of the same month. And on that same day, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel was to kill the Passover lamb at the same time at twilight. And then, as you know, such a familiar part of the story, they were to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts of their houses and also on the lintel, that horizontal support above the door. And that blood of the Passover lamb would be a sign for them. When God would see the blood, he would pass over his people and not destroy them when he strikes the land of Egypt with the terrible plague of the death of the firstborn. We are further told that they were to eat the meal with unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is a symbol of the haste with which Israel left Egypt. They would have no time to wait until the dough was risen. They were to be a people on the move, ready at a moment's notice to go. They were to eat with a belt on their waist, with their outer garment fully prepared for swift travel. They were to wear their shoes. They were to eat with sandals on their feet, a staff in their hand. They were to eat their meal in haste. They were to be ready to go on a war footing, if you will, alert, aware, fully engaged, watching, waiting, a great host ready to move hastily into the Lord's deliverance. And further we are told in verse 8 that they were to include bitter herbs, literally bitters or bitter things, with the meal. In Jewish tradition, for the bitter herb, they have used fresh grated horseradish, romaine lettuce, or endive. In Jewish tradition, they take some of the bitter herbs, enough if you crunch it together, to make the size of a small egg, and they make it into a ball. The herbs are often dipped into a paste made of apples similar in appearance to the clay the Jews would have been familiar with in Egypt. And it was dipped to sweeten it ever so slightly to take the edge of the bitterness off. But it was essential to still taste the bitterness. The bitterness was a reminder of the bitterness of Israel's plight, of their toil as slaves in Egypt. In fact, we read in Exodus 1.14 the other use of this word that, quote, their lives were made bitter with hard labor. Remember the story, beloved. They had been slaves in Egypt. They had known misery and experienced woe. They lived in a land where they were never truly at home. They served evil masters who made their lives miserable. And by eating these bitters, these bitter herbs, it was something they were never to forget, that part of their history. Even after their deliverance from bondage, 
They were to acknowledge it. They were to remember it. What they were before the Lord redeemed them. And this they did by eating bitter things. It didn't taste particularly good. But it was part of their worship. And they needed to do it. And that is something I think that you and I do not do nearly often enough. We don't take time to think about the bitterness of our lives before we knew the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't think often enough about the misery and the lostness of sin. Sin's darkness and sin's hopelessness. Where we would be without Jesus. The spiritual death and desperation of the natural condition of the human person outside of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of this in many ways, really daily, but I've especially been reminded of it in the aftermath of the election. I'm ready to turn everything off, frankly, but people simply can't see straight. They are obsessed, it seems, with politics because it has become a god to them. When God is not your God, something else will become your God. It might be money, it might be sex, power, or politics, but you will worship something. You will worship someone, and you are blind to the truth and to the reality of God and to Jesus Christ and to the truth of his word. Friends, one of the greatest errors ever believed and accepted by men is the error that non-Christians are merely sick or merely ill or merely dying or hurting outside of Jesus Christ. You've heard it said that it's like this, the non-Christian, the man outside of Christ, apart from grace, is like someone swimming in the ocean and he's beginning to drown and he's going to go down. But if you throw him the life preserver, if he catches it and holds on for dear life, well, that's like embracing Christ and trusting in him and becoming a Christian. But that does not capture at all what the Bible says about someone who is not a Christian. For the non-Christian is not floating or swimming or struggling or drowning. The Bible says he is dead. He's already drowned. And he has sunk to the bottom of the sea. He's a corpse, unable to save himself, unable to make any Godward motion, unable to do anything, even to believe savingly on Jesus Christ. Unless God's Spirit first breathes life into him, resurrects him, and makes him alive, a new creation in Christ. It is perhaps the greatest error of our day, the error of all errors, and the error from which innumerable other errors spring, that natural man outside of Christ is not dead, but merely sick, 
not hopeless, but merely needy. And what did Paul say to the Ephesian Christians? You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. That's Ephesians 2.1. But Ephesians 2.4, but God, but God, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Christian salvation is not merely making sick men well. It is making dead men and women alive. Think of Lazarus in the tomb. What power did he have to raise himself from the dead? None. But what could he do? How could he resist when Jesus commanded him to come out of that tomb? He was coming out of that tomb because Jesus had made him alive who was dead. And what did Jesus say to the scholar Nicodemus? Did he not say to him that one must be born again? And unless one were born again, born from above, he could not enter. Indeed, he could not even see the kingdom of God. We are dead, dear friends. Not sick, not ill, not hurting, not terminal, but dead outside of Jesus Christ. God could not have made it any more clear. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. The soul that sins shall die, and the wages of sin is death. That is the bitterness. What we once were, dead in sin, enslaved and in bondage to it, under the power of the evil one, living under his miserable tyranny, blind to the kingdom of God, deaf to the word of God. Our hearts are heart of stone, impenetrable to God's truth until he make us alive. And Paul, for his part, would never let Christians forget this. Therefore, remember, he says, Therefore, remember, Ephesians 2.11, that at that time, before you knew Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, he says, you were Christless, peopleless, hopeless and godless in the world. That is what it is like to be outside of Christ. And we must know that and remember that to fully appreciate the redemption he accomplished for us. He didn't merely nudge us in the right direction. He didn't come to give us a good example he didn't come to help us clean up our act or turn over a new leaf. He came to make us alive who once were dead. 
He came to raise dead men's bones to life. He came and spoke his voice. Rotting corpses came out of their tombs. A new creation. Eat the bitter things. Remember them. That you might never forget what you were. Friend, have you ever stopped to think what your life would be like if Jesus Christ had not saved you? If you remained the person you were outside of Christ? If you continued to think the way you used to think and to act the way you used to act and to live the way you used to live? If you had simply gone on living on a road to hell the way you were? There is a line in one of our hymns. Uh, we sing it often. Sinners whose love can ne'er forget uh, the wormwood and the gall. Remember that one? Uh, there's a verse in Lamentations 3.19. Quote, I remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall my soul, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. And then there is a note of hope. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. It's not a hopeless remembrance. It's a hopeful remembrance. God is merciful. God is gracious. And immediately after those words in Lamentations, we read the most famous words of that book. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now Jesus, too, our Lord and Savior, tasted the bitter things. On the cross, they gave him wine, they mingled it with gall, made bitter. But that was not the bitter thing. He refused to drink it. He would take nothing to cloud his faculties or blunt the pain of dying. He suffered every element of woe in the bitter cup given him by the Father. But if anyone ever tasted bitterness... It was our Lord. He was forsaken by those closest to him. He was betrayed by a dear friend. His own friends disassociated themselves from him. He was wrongly accused, treated unjustly, beaten, mocked, spat upon, and he was nailed to a cross. And he tasted this bitterness, not because he deserved it, not because he had sinned or done anything unrighteous, but because of our sins for which he suffered and died. Our Lord Jesus did this owning us, embracing us, taking charge of us, and taking our bitterness upon himself. And he did it as the one who knew no sin. You and I will never be able to fully comprehend 
what that means for the Holy Lamb of God to bear the sins of his race of people, to be treated and forsaken and punished as if he himself had committed all of our sins. But that's what he did on the cross. He's the Passover lamb. He remembered our bitterness. He tasted our bitterness. And he redeemed our bitterness. One day he will destroy our bitterness forever. And every remembrance of it. Not long from now, the kingdom will be consummated. And the promise will be fulfilled. God himself shall be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. For behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. This then, the difference, an American Thanksgiving and this one, a bitter feast of sacrifice and of haste, preparing for an exodus, celebrating a feast that identifies itself as the Lord's own covering and sheltering love for his people. One is sure to fill the belly, but the other can save the soul. In Christ our Passover has been crucified. He has risen from the dead. Let's pray. Father, in our activities and our celebrations and our observances, help us not to forget also the bitterness of sin, the misery of life outside of Christ, the tyranny of the devil, and sin's cruel enslavement from which we have been set free by the blood of Christ. We thank you for the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God whose blood appeared and our souls were saved. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>